live from Dreerbird. This is the Locked Tomb Podcast. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. Today we're covering chapters 7 and 8 and flashback chapter John 1523 of Nona the 9th by Tamsin Muir. As always, don't forget to check out the Locked Tomb series creator hub on our website at locktombpod.com slash fanmerch to support artists in the Locked Tomb fandom community. Woo woo and... As always, if you'd like to support us here at Locktoon Pod, you can find stickers, pins, magnets, a little B-Day card, whatever. You can send your friend. (laughs) Your support has helped us cover some of our expenses here at the pod, and we are so grateful. So thanks, y'all. This section of Nona begins day two of the book. We get more domestic life between Camilla and Palamides and Pyrrha and Nona. Honesty has a black eye from his job the night before, and Nona makes a fake radio call. (laughs) (laughs) Then we see the beginning of John's necromancy in pre-apocalypse Earth, which is a very interesting bit. Yeah, but (laughs) but Amy, (laughs) before we get started, I have a question for you. Okay. Why does the Virgin Mary never sleep? Why? Because she's always been awake. (laughs) I th- it might be a false parallel. <laughs> no, I think it's a it's a true parallel. Wake is basically Virgin Mary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's not really a virgin, but maybe neither was Mary. <laughs> blasphemy, blasphemy. <laughs> also, Happy New Year, everyone. Yeah, I think this episode is actually our second episode that will be out in. 2023 (laughs) but we are recording this at the very tail end of 2022 so Mm -hmm. future us you know it will be happy new year again to everyone it's really weird that we've made it this far and i just have to say that one of my new year's resolutions is to do a little bit of prep for this podcast every day so that I don't cram the shit out of it like (laughs) the two days leading up. (laughs) Yeah, maybe mine should be that I edit for an hour every day instead of spending two full days in the dark answering not a single text or phone call trying to finish an episode. (sighs) It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. (laughs) But this is also, you know, 2023 is the year in which Electo the Ninth comes out. So, mm. oh man, we should maybe start a countdown. We should. Do we have a date? I've, I've I've seen a lot of things flitting around on Twitter. I know October, right? But do we have an actual date? I'm not sure. Sometimes places will like say a date, but it's not actually official. Anyway, we'll yeah. we'll find out soon enough. We will. We will. So let's get into it. Yeah. Without further ado, we start day two of None of the Ninth. Just like day one, day two starts with a list of events, basically a breakdown of everything that happens in this day in the life of Nona. The list for day two is mush for breakfast, <laughs> Honesty's job goes terribly wrong, the city has a worst day, Camilla and Palamides, keep her home tonight, and four days until the tomb opens. Dun dun dun! Oh, yeah. And today we're basically covering mush for breakfast, Honesty's job goes terribly wrong. Yeah. And then then the John chapter that's not really covered in this list. No. So we start with Camilla waking Nona up with a wet sponge, which she threatened to do, I think, earlier in the book. (laughs) Yeah, I think in chapter one. And so here we go. Camilla following through as Camilla does. And I do think it's interesting because Camilla says she used a sponge because Nona wouldn't wake up. And I do think that this might be significant, firstly, because maybe Nona is getting closer to dying. And then Mm. secondly, because maybe these dreams are getting stronger and stronger as this whole soul pulling, you know, towards the body continues to get stronger. Totally. But this dream, I mean, I, I interpreted this as pretty much entirely the pool scene, although I think, Mel, you you thought it might be kind of a mix. Yeah, I don't. I think I, I'm going, I'm fully on board. I think it's also the pool scene. I had one curiosity around the description of the red eyes that were all around them, but I have since, I've reread the pool scene. <laughs> uh, Again? I, I had to reread it oh for this gosh, podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> 
And I, yeah, this is so, so clearly the pool scene. The other mention I wanted to make was that at the very end of Harrow, I can't remember which chapter it is or if it's in the like epilogue, Mm -hmm. but right before Harrow kind of crawls into the tomb, Mm -hmm. like where, you know, Electo formerly laid, one of Harrow's last memories is of the pool scene, is of Gideon's kind of arms around her. Mm -hmm. And so it does make sense that this is the kind of dream that Nona keeps coming back to because Mm -hmm. this was so present in Harrow's mind just before she went underground (laughs) or dormant or whatever it is. Right. And if we, we can go through the clues really quick, Nona feels her feet are booted and in the water. So this is holds true. Harrow jumped in the pool with her shoes on, basically. She's touching hands with the person next to her, just like when Harrow and Gideon are holding hands after they get out of the pool. Also, the red eyes all around them are the skeletons that Harrow raised to guard the pool. Because this is the thing I didn't really think about until I'd read the book like 50,000 times, but... All of these raised skeletons have little red eyes. Yeah. Which is very metal. That's what, yeah, it is. And that's what really threw me when I was like, I was like, I don't remember red eyes being in the description in the pool scene. And they're actually not. When you read the pool scene, there is no indication that these skeletons have red eyes. Right. But in other places throughout the books, and in particular at the end of Nona, when Nona realizes that all these thin human shapes around her are actually skeletons. She notes that they all have red eyes. And so Mm -hmm. all these constructs have red eyes. So we can deduce that, yes, these are, in fact, the skeletons that Harold raised to guard the pool when she and Gideon had their moment. Yes. A couple of curious things. Nona says, I'm touching her hands. She's touching my hands. But in the dream, it's always my hands. Remember, Cam? I'm touching my own hands, but they're not mine. And I feel like we could, I I feel like this, (laughs) we could really pull this apart. But I think in general, it's just these souls are all crossed. And so when she's having this dream, I mean, also Gideon and Harrow are in Lichterhood together. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so it's like, even if she's literally just referring to Harrow and Gideon, in some ways, Gideon's hands are Harrow's hands because they've done this soul swap. And so I think it's just in, it's just generally a like soul swap clusterfuck (laughs) of touching hands. (laughs) Yes. I'm not entirely sure like there's any deeper meaning to this besides just like all of their souls being crossed. Yeah. I mean, my interpretation of this was, was, and then we can move on because, again, we can. <laughs> but, but I see this as when she says, I'm touching her hands, it means that she is touching Gideon's hands. Gideon's then touching her hands, but in the dream, it's always my hands. I'm touching my own hands, but they're not mine. I interpreted this as Electo and Harrow are kind of sharing a body. And right. so I, I interpret that to be where the wires are getting crossed there because it's not really Electo's body, but she is like part of Harrow. Anyway, right. <laughs> all that's to say. Every time I read it, I'm like, wait, what hands? <laughs> this is like the brilliance of Tamsin Muir, just lines like this. Mm-hmm. I love this. <laughs> and we could also debate this one for a little bit, but Nona describes it in the dream. She's so hungry. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and, and in the pool scene, <laughs> I think Amy's note is, does she mean physically or like psychologically and emotionally? And then my note is sexually. (laughs) Classic. I mean, I think, yeah, I think hunger is actually desire in some way, shape or form. Like Mm -hmm. hunger to be like held or hunger to be kissed or hunger just to be like with this person. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I don't... I don't read hungry as a literal, like, hungry for food here. Yeah. If she was telling it from Gideon's perspective, it would be a little bit more up in the air because Gideon is literally always hungry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but Harrow's but- never hungry. <laughs> Harrow's never been hungry. So she doesn't like food. Yeah. I think we're both on the in the same. I thought it was kind of, I'm sure that, like, she's horny as all hell. But also, <laughs> I think it's more like a, 
she's this this hunger to be close to this person and to kind of like surrender to the fact that she really cares about this person. Yeah. And maybe there's some desire mixed up in that. But I I thought, yeah. I also was like, is it hunger for when she's thinking about Electo? But I think it's Gideon. I think I she's think just it's like Gideon. I think she's I think we can come down on she is psychologically, emotionally, sexually hungry <laughs> for Gideon. <laughs> Mel, how are we here where you're trying to argue that I just heterosexually think it's because- attracted to Gideon right I now? Think it's, I think it's just becoming more and more evident. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I think <laughs> I think part of my thing is like, I don't want to hope too much. Because hoping too much in these books just gets your heart broken. Mm. So if I can stay in denial about any sort of sexual relationship between Harrow and Gideon, then that's good. You know, Mm. then I'm not going to get hurt as badly. But maybe I should just feel things. I will say I... Wow, Mel. (laughs) There's... Steve. There is some really good fan fiction out there that I've read recently that's like holiday themed. And let me tell you, it really does fill the void. I feel like I've really come around to uh-huh. Harrow and Gideon's sexual relationship, like because of all the really good fan fiction. So I'm just going to leave you, it fan there. fan fiction writers <laughs> everywhere. We love you and appreciate you. <laughs> right. Anyway. So- <laughs> Once they're done recording her dream, Nona gets stressed in the t-shirt from the cover, actually. Yes. She thinks it's childish. She's not that into it. Yeah. But here we are. We're into it, though. <laughs> and Cam asks her, with the recorder off, if she likes her hands in the dream. And Nona replies, not one bit. And this is interesting. It could be interpreted multiple ways. I thought it was kind of Nona hates having hands because she's not supposed to be human-shaped. But it could also yeah. be Harrow's self-hate coming through. What did you think? I felt that it's the same way. I think later on in the book, we really learn that Electo fucking hates being in a human body. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make sense. Right. And so I think that that's what this is referring to. I actually found it really interesting here that Cam even followed up with a question. I think Nona says... You know, Cam doesn't usually do that, like follow right. up with a question. And I'm just, I wonder what Cam is thinking about here in this moment. And I think when Nona responds, like, no, not at all, Cam is just really confused and is, like, trying to think about what the hell is going on. I did have one thought that it's somewhat related to Cam and Palamides sharing a body and, like, maybe wondering how Palamides feels in Cam's body. I don't know, but... Yeah, I was literally just thinking that as... Like right now, I wonder if it is the reason that she didn't record it is it's actually like kind of a personal question that she wants to know because of her calamities. That's actually a great interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. High five. (laughs) High five. (laughs) Moving on. uh, Pira makes mush for breakfast. We're always making breakfast. Like literally so much of this book is just day-to-day life. It it does make it kind of difficult to talk about without just like literally going through everything that happens i know but anyway pierre makes bush for breakfast she's talking about how the tensions are getting higher in the city and then nona asks her why we suffer hates her yeah i actually really like this passage Mm -hmm. and it also brings up a few different questions for me i think pierre says that we suffer hates her because I remind her that her god was just a human being who could get tired and fuck up. And so Pira is referring to Wake as like We Suffer's god. Right. And how maybe Pira reminds We Suffer that Wake was like a human (laughs) who could make mistakes. The mistake being falling in love with or sleeping with Pira and Gideon the First. And Pira goes on to, like, say, you know, I'd like to think that We Suffer actually doesn't hate me anymore because I'm so charming. Uh (laughs) And Nona makes this, like, (laughs) kind of, she's like, well, if you're so charming, why are you single? (laughs) And I'm just like, brutal. (laughs) Yeah, brutal slam on Pira out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) And Pira responds with, I've got a broken heart and I'll never love again. 
Mm-hmm. And then that could be interpreted as her broken heart over Wake, but then it goes on. I think Nona interprets it as brokenheartedness over losing Gideon the first, which makes sense. I mean, we never really hear Pira mourn Gideon the first. I mean, she must have really complicated emotions given that she hid in his brain for 10,000 years. But (laughs) I mean, you know, at one point he was her best friend and sort of in a way the love of her life. They were very, very, very close and she lost him. Yeah, it's curious because Nona here is making calamities. (laughs) Camilla and calamities. Calamities. (laughs) Nona is making parallel between Camilla and Palamides relationship and Pira's. And the function, I think, of this, it sheds more light on how Nona's interpreting the relationship between Camilla and Palamides. Uh-huh. Which does lean even more, I think, right here towards the direction of, like, lovers. Uh-huh. <laughs> because she talks about how they they talk to each other in pages of letters and letters and letters. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know... Camilla just leaves them out because Nona can't read. And at one point, Camilla had asked Pira, like, are you going to read my correspondence? (laughs) And Pira says, not unless I need to induce vomiting, which like, (laughs) which leads me to believe that Pira thinks that she's going to be reading love letters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they definitely are soulmates. They are soulmates. (laughs) They are in so many ways. What's this first barracks massacre you mentioned here? Oh, when when uh, Pira is talking about the tensions in the city, she says that there are more dead bodies in the streets than there were after the first barracks massacre. Uh, So, I mean, who knows? But uh, presumably the ninth nine house barracks was attacked or there was some sort of massacre to do with it. I assume it's probably when all the necromancers went crazy because mm. of Varun. Yeah. And they were, you know, I'm sure that anyone who wasn't necromantic in the barracks was trying to deal with these necromancers going crazy. Yeah. Which probably left them vulnerable. And they were, I mean, I th- it must have all fallen apart in that time. Right. Right. Totally. That's what I thought it probably was. Yeah. And I think we talk about that a little bit in our last episode. Again, mm-hmm. this is all inference. Like, we don't actually have a description of this, but that is our assumption. <laughs> I just read... <laughs> so, Palamides comes in, in in Camilla's body at this point, and they start to argue about... Pyrrha used their food money to bribe someone about Site C, and Pal offers to switch her for Site B, but Pyrrha refuses because she doesn't want Camilla and Palamides to take that risk you take. But just really quick, side note... Because I thought that this was very funny that you wrote this down. I also researched this. I just didn't write it down. Pira says delicious num-nums for baby. (laughs) And I was like, num-nums has to be. Delicious num-nums for baby. Yeah. Sounds like so meme-y. I've never heard something that sounded so much like a meme. But I couldn't find any. There's literal num-nums baby food. Yeah. Like brand num-nums. Yeah. There's so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I also did all this research. Yeah, I was like, where was the like, fuck is this meme, though? I will find this meme. I'm like, is it just not in America? <laughs> like, yeah. But, um, okay, I also found the Num Num's baby food, but there's also... <laughs> I, I don't even know how to describe this because I'm really confused by it. But there's also, like, kids' toys and a YouTube kids' show called Num Noms. Mm. It's very strange, and it's like definitely a world I'm not part of. I, you know, if anyone else is, write us, let us know. But it's like these like little fake foods, you know, like tiny little fake foods that are like kind of big, like popular. You probably have no idea, but I, what? I've watched ASM. I'm an I watch ASMR, so I, so <laughs> I so I know what like fake little foods are. But anyway, so these. Num noms are kind of like that, but there's like a whole YouTube series with them and they sing all these songs. Anyway, this is what I think <laughs> that this is referring to. What but is I- happening? <laughs> anyway, I don't know how to explain it. If someone else wants to write in and share okay. more, go for it. But anyway, you think we- it's a reference to, to num noms, not num noms. Yes. Wow. Because it's pronounced num noms, but 
It's spelled num noms. Anyway, we do oh, not need to spend any more time. My goodness <laughs> gracious. I'm going to send you some num nums baby food. <laughs> Please don't. I'm trying to, I'm moving. I'm trying not to accumulate small fake food. Small, small <laughs> fake food. <laughs> oh, anyway, I don't even know how to respond to that, but let us know if uh, you know of a meme connected to delicious num nums for baby. <laughs> So, but back to the task <laughs> at hand. <laughs> Pira is is basically like you shouldn't be taking that risk. You take this is referring to, I think, Palamity is performing necromancy in Cam's body. Basically, whatever switcheroo they do, that this is really risky mm-hmm. and can really hurt or harm Camilla. Mm-hmm. And I think Pira says. It's a thalergetic fuckfest you're subjecting that cerebral cortex to. Uh Every time you overlap, you're subjecting her thalamus to appalling stress. Yeah, it's, I mean, I feel like it's not worth getting like super medical about this. But yeah, it's it's really stress. It's like physically, a a physical stress on, on Cam's brain when they share, when both of their souls are present in the body. And obviously this is fantasy, like this isn't a real thing, but... Then Pira talks about when she used to do the uh, – when she started that, the – what's it called? The projection trial. The projection trial in Canaan House, which I did remember they call Pira's trial, not Gideon's trial. So I feel like Pira actually had more to do with it than Gideon. But anyway, she used to drain Gideon the first's brain fluid after every time they were testing the trial. And the projection trial, for those of you who haven't reread – all of these books 40 times and can just remember this off the top of your head is the trial where Gideon's like, I want to fight it because it looks like swords. Yes. And it's it's literally where Harrow in Gideon the Ninth kind of inhabit is able to see mm-hmm. the construct through Gideon's eyes. So she's somehow like within Gideon. And then Gideon's also able to see kind of what Harrow can see and therefore fight the construct. Right. So it is kind of like two people in one brain. Because also I remember that Harrow wasn't really able to speak to Gideon, but like Gideon could hear at least some thoughts. Yeah, it would be, it will actually be interesting to go back and reread that scene, kind Mm -hmm. of knowing a little bit more about all the soul share, bodies sharing, souls swapping kind of stuff at this point in the series. But in any case... What I found interesting about this section is not just that, like, Pierre is very rigorous, went back when her and Gideon are doing this trial, like, you know, 10,000 years ago or whatever, le- a little less than that. And Pierre says that it's fucking around with souls that's the problem. You can't, you can't ever get the full data on souls. Mm-hmm. And this basically has remained true throughout all of the necromantic history. And even, you know, and we'll get to this in later John chapters, but John has an incredibly challenging time understanding the soul, like, Mm -hmm. body connection. And so Pierre's just like, this is really fucking dangerous and you should not be messing with this. Right, right. It's also interesting we get a, a mention of Mercy Morn and Christabel in that Christabel was the only Mercy Morn and Christabel were the only other people that did the trial because Chris didn't mind being trepanned on the regular, which is like, you know, when you punch a hole in someone's skull to drain their brain fluid, <laughs> which really gives us even more insight into Christabel's intensity. Before and after the apocalypse, Christabel is just like really, really <laughs> will like do anything to herself for the cause. She doesn't mind being a martyr. <laughs> yeah. Yes. She definitely does not mind being a martyr and in fact does become one. <laughs> yes. Twice actually. I know. Jeez. Moving through this chapter, we end up <laughs> Nona gets stretched. They all do their stretches. Cam drops Nona off at school but doesn't come up, which is apparently unusual. And then when Nona gets into the classroom, she sees the nice lady teacher putting an ice pack on Honesty's eye because he has a black eye. And the angel comes in and checks it out. And it's not until the their um, break that all the kids get together and talk about what happened. And Honesty 
tells them everything that happened at his right. job last night, which if you remember, he had told everyone that he had a real job. <laughs> right. And also a quick note. This is, I think, the first time that we learn that the angel is a doctor and that Hot Sauce has some sort of history with the angel as a doctor. Uh -huh. Because when the angel comes in to look at Honesty's eye, the lady teacher is like, oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Uh -huh. I didn't know what to do. I think Nona asked Hot Sauce if she knew that the angel was a doctor and Hot Sauce is like, yeah. So... Again, no details here, but it's just we're getting fed little bits of information about the angel and about the angel's relationship with hot sauce. Right, right. So basically what Honesty tells them happened the night before, Honesty had gotten this job helping people basically drop into the tunnels underneath the city. Someone would drop in on top of the trucks that, are, that drive through these tunnels and steal like their air conditioning and like coolant and stuff from the top of the truck. And then Honesty was on the team that would help pull them back up with this net. And they had done this twice very successfully. But on the third time, when they, you know, when the trucks came by, it was a huge noise. And there were, you know, a bunch of trucks. And for some reason, the guy, the guy who like dropped on top, still dropped, even though it was like such a big risk yeah such a big risk and he comes back out with without anything and tells honesty and the rest of the people who are doing this job that he had opened the top of like the cargo part of the truck and looked down and a bunch of people with white eyes had looked back up at him and he was obviously so freaked out and then they realize that people are following them and they let honesty off so that you know he doesn't get attacked by whoever saw them try and get into their trucks and honesty actually runs into a telephone pole and that's how he got his black eye <laughs> i like that that's how he got I know. His black eye. but there's the other kind of little detail here is that when that dude drops down he claims that he was extremely quiet and mm -hmm. yet everyone in that cargo hold still all looked up at him at the same time which right. obviously like really freaked him out. Also, there's like 10 to 20 mega trucks in this line yeah. of vehicles. This is like a huge line of vehicles. A, a huge line that you might even call a convoy. You might call it a convoy. And and also these like this group of people is right in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. That is some classic secret service shit where of course mm -hmm. when you have when you're trying to hide someone or you're trying to like you know, prevent them from getting assassinated or whatever, you kind of put them in the middle of said convoy so that it's harder to find them. Right. So this is the convoy. And actually <laughs> what the convoy is, is Mervwing. I believe this is correct. Mervwing yeah. has the six house oversight body. They've put them in a mega truck and basically have been driving around the city constantly to hide their location and the sixth house in true sixth house fashion basically all the necromancers had blinded themselves so that they wouldn't be as affected by the blue light from Varun because they didn't want to go insane obviously mm -hmm. and this is also what you know they do to Nona at the end of the book so that she is more believably a necromancer when they're trying to pass her off as Harrow totally and and you know it does make sense this is just kind of occurring to me that it would be the eyes. Like the eyes, I think they say, are the window into someone's soul. Mm -hmm. I can't remember like what saying that is or where that's from. But right. we also know, right, that when there's soul swapping happening, the eyes are the indicator. Right. And so the theory here is that however the resurrection beasts are affecting necromancers, and I think mm -hmm. you and I talk pretty extensively about where necromancy lives. Is it in the body? Is it in the soul? Right. Where does it originate? I think we've landed on like, it's driven by the soul. Mm -hmm. And so if the eyes are a window into the soul, then hey, let's blind them and right. see if that doesn't impact us. So that was a lot of information that again, is not here in this chapter. We actually learn a lot of this later on. Right. But honesty does say, you know, I knew it was the convoy. So, yeah. I mean, kind of surprisingly, the kids <laughs> know a little bit more, it seems, than the adults in this situation. 
Yeah. They don't know what the convoy is, but they know it's like scary. Right. <laughs> they don't have context, but they have what's in front of them. Mm-hmm. So moving into chapter eight, we learn that the angel is still looking frumpy and tired. And presumably someone is still watching the school building because Hot Sauce tells Nona or asks Nona to pretend that she's making a radio call when she takes Noodle out at lunch or out yeah. during the hour of science. Yeah. I This little tiny mini chapter really confuses me because <laughs> I just don't get how Hot Sauce came up with this plan. Like, it's a good plan, but but I don't, I think this is such a significant chapter because what happens in this chapter leads to like a whole domino effect of events mm-hmm. a few chapters from now. And it all really, yeah, begins with Hot Sauce telling Nona to fake a radio call. And she's faking this radio call during the hour of science. So this is when Nona takes Noodle out. There's like a really cute description of Nona putting shoes on Noodle so that his paws don't burn on the ground. And I don't know about you, but like I have a little dachshund and <laughs> named Jim. <laughs> and <laughs> He's right behind you. <laughs> He's right behind me. I put shoes on his paws in the winter so he doesn't get uh-huh. salt on his feet. And it is a pain in the ass. They hate it. They hate it so much. And so Noodle has six legs. Yeah, the horror. But anyway, not the most important part of this chapter. <laughs> but, but relatable. I mean, yes. <laughs> Could be significant in the future. <laughs> I feel like Hot Sauce tells Noden to make a fake radio call because... She just is trying to get some sort of response from the person who's watching them and wanted to see what would happen. It sounds like to me, like what would happen if a kid watched like a lot of movies Mm. and like got some sort of like watched spy movies and like just was trying to repeat. But also, I mean, Hot Sauce grew up in a war zone, so she could also have just learned it from being a kid in a war zone. Yeah. Yeah. And seen, I mean, she must, she didn't come up with this. She like saw someone do this at some point or. Totally. Yeah. But anyway, totally. she <laughs> she tells Nona to pretend to make a radio call and cover her mouth, which is also interesting because part of the issue here is that Nona forgets to cover her mouth for the first half of her fake radio conversation. Yeah. Right. And so what she says when she fakes it, is she says, I am having a conversation with Crown. And by the way, if you haven't listened to the audiobook, this is a really <laughs> Moira Quirk nails this. Mm-hmm. I just think this is so good. This little blurb here. <laughs> uh-huh. But anyway, she says, I am having a conversation with Crown. <laughs> <laughs> and then Nona remembers that she's meant to be covering her mouth and she does. So Whoever is watching them thinks that Nona is having a conversation with Coronabeth. Right. And this is what makes me think that because later when they get picked up by Blood of Eden by Sessaphon Wing, which is their wing, sort of, but it has crown and we suffer and Pash, they ask Nona why she was making a radio call to crown. And it's interesting because, I mean, they did, she faked him out. Yeah. I feel like it probably was Sessafon Wing watching them, so probably Pash. I thought it was Merv Wing watching them. Yeah, or they're spying on each other's radio signals. Because I, and I think we can, we can get into this in a few chapters when shit kind of hits the fan at the school. But uh-huh. I thought that both, you know, I thought Pash of Sessafon Wing was definitely keeping an eye on the angel mm-hmm. and also that Merv Wing was kind of staking out the school. Yeah. Probably what happened is that whatever tensions are making the angel seem very tired and frumpled have led to her needing a bodyguard kind of at all time because it kind of coincides. Like she yeah. starts looking really tired and this person starts watching. Yeah. So I think it's probably Pash watching her. But also, I would not be surprised if there's also Merv Wing watching her. Like, she's obviously very important to Blood of Eden in general. Well, in the in the last, like, section, we assume that Pash was the one in the alleyway. Uh-huh. But Hot Sauce sees someone in a window of a building. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But I, I'm pretty sure that Merv Wing is there to watch Nona mm-hmm. and that Sessafon Wing <laughs> is there to keep an eye on the angel. 
Yeah. Or, or they could or be both. doing both. Yeah. You know. But in any case, whoever it is, Nona fakes them out with this call. We also get like a little info here about the timeline of when Nona has interacted with Crown. Uh-huh. And, you know, Nona can't lie. So she's like really bad at making shit up. So she's like literally having this fake conversation with Crown, saying things that she actually really wants to say to Corona Beth. Yeah. She really likes Corona Beth. Yeah. She also says something here. She said, would you like to come to my birthday party on the beach? If I don't get really mad, it'll probably still be able to happen. And I kind of feel like this is Nona being like, if I get mad, I might die. Yeah. I also know, what weren't Palamides and Camilla and Pira kind of like holding that <laughs> over her? Like, yeah. if you have a tantrum, you can't have a birthday party? Yeah. Yeah. I also love that she says, please wear your hair down. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And then she also says, you know, I know you visited me before, but I was too young and I can't remember, so it doesn't really count. Mm -hmm. And so there was this period of time where <clears throat> Crown, Palamides, Cam, and Pyrrha were closer, as referenced here. Right. But at the end of this fake phone call, Nona, like, falls asleep outside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's, like, so tired. I think her body's probably really weak. Yeah. And she falls asleep, which then leads us into the John chapters, which again, seem to occur whenever Nona falls asleep. Right, right. So this one is John 1523, which corresponds to the letters O and W. So right now we've got the toe, <laughs> the T-O-W. In this, this is a pretty short John chapter. We basically cover the beginning. So they've turned off the power and so everything was supposed to basically disintegrate immediately but there are some of these bodies that didn't and we learn that john used to have brown eyes like light brown eyes but over the course of like the first couple of days of basically john's necromancy coming into play so it seems like it really started like right when the lights got turned off yeah his eyes go from brown to amber to gold yeah yeah and this is interesting because i wonder if i'm sure the reasons were multitudinous but i wonder if part of the reason or a big part of the reason that john white or like wiped the memories of the people his followers who he resurrected was because he didn't have the yellow eyes mm. and so they would have known that he had switched souls or that he had become lictors with electo but he is not a lictor with Electo yet. He only is necromantic. Right, in this in this bit, yes. But yeah, yeah. presumably basically everyone dies. He raises oh, Electo. Yeah. Uh -huh. They become, you know, they they achieve perfect lictorhood, I think, in that kind of in those mm -hmm. moments. And then yeah. by the time he raises everyone from the dead, he already has like the black eyes. Right. right. Yes. Also the way that this chapter opens, John 15, 23. He mm -hmm. said on the first day, A believed. On the second day, so did M and G. By the third day, everyone believed because of my eyes. Mm -hmm. This is, I'm pretty sure, a biblical reference. I took this to be somewhat related to when Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb where Jesus was buried mm -hmm. after he was crucified and discovers that Jesus is not there. And that was like on the first day and she believed right away. Mm -hmm. And then there were a couple other kind of disciples who were there and were like, yeah, we believe. And then it took some other disciples longer. Mm -hmm. So I'm pretty sure that's what this is kind of a nod towards. Yeah, I think you're right. And that is in John 20, if anyone wants to go read the Bible. <laughs> And they're still sort of in the post-apocalyptic Earth landscape. Pretty bleak. It's pretty bleak. I You said something about paying closer attention to the formatting of this chapter. I'm curious what you were referring to. Well, it's interesting because the punctuation is kind of weird. When he's telling something that someone else said in his memories, you know, they use there are quotation marks, but like when it's him talking, there are no quotation marks. Sometimes there's a colon. Sometimes there's just a comma. I mean, Tamsin Muir is a deliberate enough writer that that is probably on purpose. I also think someone said 
as we've been preparing for this Homestuck episode, we will have to ask the people that we're talking to because there was something about how these specific scenes really mirror some type of scene in Homestuck. Like mm. literally the 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 format mirrors it. So mm. I'd be interested to hear about that. But it's something we can pay attention to in the future. I don't think it's like super important, but yeah, it is interesting. To me, it reads like the Bible. Like there's a lot of weird punctuation in the Bible. True. And like the way the verses are too. And so like the cadence even of how he John is speaking here mm-hmm. kind of reminds me of that as well. There's also in sort of the structure of of the John chapters, this is a chapter where it's very clear that at one point he's speaking to Electo and that at another point he's speaking to Harrow, mm-hmm. which again, I think kind of backs the theory that we're getting a mix of like Harrow and Electo. Because they say, like, in the dream, John and whoever he's speaking with are kind of, like, hiking up a big hill of brown, sun-blasted grass, right? This is all sort of, like, post-destruction of the planet. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And John is very sensitive in this moment. I think he ends up having a bit of a breakdown. Mm -hmm. And then once he's done crying, he's able to, like, talk again. And he's sharing the story and he's sharing it with, it seems to be, Electo, because he says, if the whole world hadn't been freaking out every time you did something unexpected and mm-hmm. people thought you were going to kick the bucket early, nobody was looking at us back then and we got lucky it worked. Like, right. this is this is Electo's memory because uh-huh. the you here is referring to planet Earth. Yeah. Definitely. And I assume that this is all kind of taking place kind of immediately after all those bombs went off. Yeah. I thought there was an interesting reference in here to Augustine. So now in the previous John chapter, Mercy was freaking out and was asking like, you're on drugs, (laughs) you're on coke. Yeah. Now Augustine is freaking out and Mercy is calm, which we see in Harold the Ninth. This exact same thing happened. Totally. And John says that this was kind of their normal double act and it's only when they were on the same level like they were feeling the same thing that he knew it was very serious which is a nice reference to the end of hair of the ninth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and speaking of the og disciples it looks like cassiopeia has basically without letting them know has just gone awol from <laughs> she's supposed to be working for the right. people who originally hired john and his team to right. do this project and she's just stopped communicating with them and has started basically working for John and the and the crew for free. Yep. So there's like a funny nod to freelancing as also being unemployed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which as someone who's self-employed, I I get it. That's that was funny. <laughs> and I, I feel like probably relatable to a lot of writers. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it he's got his OG crew here. And it's all of their like ways that they're interacting, their mannerisms, again, like are just mirrored post resurrection as well Mm -hmm. so even though they are not resurrected with their memories they're still like kind of hardwired to be the same people and then one thing that i found very interesting that we learn in this book is that so basically they're using the they pick these two corpses and they start to do all these experiments on them to try and figure out if they can get them to rot and they can't and it turns out i would have thought that all of the original disciples were like friends or people that God had known. But actually, it turns out we learn here that these two corpses end up being Ulysses and Titania, two of the original lictors. Yeah, this really threw me. And Mm -hmm. I, right, like, (laughs) (laughs) especially because Jod names Ulysses and Titania here. Right. Pre-resurrection. Everyone else... We don't know any of their names pre-resurrection, but we know Ulysses and Titiana because it is Titiana. Titiana. Yeah. Titian Titania. 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 Mario Quirk says Titania. <laughs> Titania. Okay. Okay, cut, Titiana. Cut all my, cut all my Titiana. <laughs> I see where your mind's at. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yeah, so you're saying Titiana is <laughs> 
and Ulysses are creations of John. Right. And so that's why we get to see their names here. Um, uh-huh. They don't have any souls. It, it's interesting. John names Titania for the a character in Midsummer by Shakespeare, who I believe is like the queen of the fairies and kind of has beef with her husband. And then he, whatever, look up Midsummer. <laughs> um, but... And then Ulysses, you think, is going to be like also some sort of reference to some sort of Shakespearean thing, but it's really just naming <laughs> a name uh, based on Jod's dog. His grandma's his dog. His grandma's dog. dog. <laughs> that she called Ulysses S. Grunt. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know it was Grunt until I actually read the book. And I just thought it was like an accent thing in the audiobook. It's a Ulysses S. Grunt. Right. And I guess I this is funny to me, an American, but for those of you who may not understand this reference, Ulysses S. Grant was a president of the United States at some yes. point. <laughs> Back in the day. <laughs> but the the way that everyone kind of first really sees necromancy performed in like a very like obvious way is that he John brings everyone into this room to introduce them to Ulysses and Titania. And as he introduces them, he moves their hands like from the other side of the room. And obviously, like I mean, I think he says Mercy Morn throws up. I mean, people are freaked out. But this is the first real demonstration of basically flesh magic. Yeah. Ever. Ever. And he's kind of learning as he goes. But this is the first time. It also seems like the first time he's done it. It's not like he's been practicing in this and then he shows them. He just kind of does it by instinct. <laughs> right. It's a slow he's doing burn. A lot <laughs> by yeah, instinct. It's a, totally. It's a slow burn up and up to this moment because, you know, he's describing throughout this chapter that mm-hmm. he's like, quote unquote, waking up. Right. That he like can all of a sudden, I can, I'm kind of reminded by in Harrow in the very beginning, Harrow as a lictor or half lictor can sense all of these heartbeats and bodies on board the ship and like mm-hmm. isn't sure what they are and then it turns out there are all these like bodies that Jod is basically sending off to repopulate the ninth house and this this chapter reminded me of that because Jod says like he can hear all of these bodies right. all, and I think he even says the quote is like all the bacteria that weren't growing that wasn't building up in the gut that wasn't pulling right. at the joints basically like these bodies are supposed to be decaying and they're not. And he can like sense all of that. So it's a cool, I think this is like a cool origin story of seeing you think of who's the very first to do something. Mm-hmm. And this is Jod, the very first necromancer. Mm-hmm. And it's all like, there is no schooling here. There is mm-hmm. no like study. He's just mm-hmm. this thing happened to him and he's figuring it out. Right. I want to add one more thing. There's a couple pop culture references in here mm-hmm. early on in the, the chapter. After John's eyes change from brown to yellow, Pyrrha says that he looks like a Maori TV pink panther. And Cassiopeia says he looks like Edward Cullen from that old Twilight movie. <laughs> if Edward Cullen had the body of a history teacher. And so again, this is our present day, basically. Right. Maybe a little bit later later but yeah and then the chapter ends with john addressing harrow again so i mean in this it's all mixed up but basically it is harrow experiencing these memories even if they're not really her memories so that wraps up that that chapter and it wraps up what we're covering in this episode but we do have some listener questions and comments yeah, I one of my f- favorite comments that just came in post our interview with Lissa Harris, which, by the way, if you haven't listened to it, it's really fun. Lissa's great. Definitely go listen to it. Someone wrote in saying that they would, in fact, like to watch a video episode of you and me, Amy, learning how to fight each other. <laughs> 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 and I just have to say to this person, I'm that's just not going to happen. Amy would whoop my ass. That's not true. <laughs> That's not true at all. <laughs> it is true because here's why. Amy would take it so seriously. I wouldn't. I'd be so I'd be so chill about it. I'd be super no. chill. I'm lit- I'm the least competitive person. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Totally. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, we'll let you know if that ever happens. Yeah. I, probably not, but yeah. And then uh, there was a question here. I thought it was a fun question. We, I don't think we have an actual answer, but a curiosity that Rosemary had who wrote in, how did Gideon get her dirty magazines back on the 9th? And Rosemary writes, it's a question that has plagued me for a while. <laughs> I know they had rare shipments from the other houses, but I don't think being an indentured servant to the ninth gave her much money, if any. I did read a short fanfic that suggested Sister Glorica, of all people, left her stash of dirty magazines behind and Gideon found her cash. Thoughts? I mean, I, I think that that's canon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> also, I want I want to read that fanfic i guess yeah, i don't know how to find us, it <laughs> can you send it our way rosemary but yeah i i i always thought it was you know how they there's some mention of the person who drives the shuttle to give oh. the ninth house like vitamins and stuff yeah i assume that that it was they were brought on that and like gideon probably didn't have a lot of money but also she probably like could find ways to i don't know <laughs> She, I mean, she had nothing else to do but but plot how to get these dirty magazines. So right, Gideon's Gideon's quite charming, you know, and resourceful. We'll say, yeah, but I mean, also Sister Glorica. There's probably like a whole underground <laughs> black market of dirty magazines on the ninth house. Yeah, I love how there's no like video pornography as far as we know but it's all like playboy <laughs> yeah <laughs> totally and like comic books <laughs> yep yep which arguably is is uh sometimes even better than the videos oh yeah no argument there but thanks for writing in <laughs> thanks for writing in rosemary that did give us quite a laugh i do want to add that um we've had quite a few questions come in and amy and i are organizing them you know, ones like this that are from Gideon and Harrow will kind of sprinkle out throughout the end of our episodes. Um, but the questions that y'all are writing in about Nona, we are folding in to each episode. So we're going to do our best to address all of them. But don't stop writing us. It brings us so much joy. Yes. Yeah. And thank you for we gotten a couple of really sweet reviews lately. And that makes our day every time. So thank you. On that note, thank you guys so much for joining us for this episode. If you have questions or comments or want to point out something that we missed, send us a question on our website at locktoonpod.com or on Twitter at locktoonpod. If you like this podcast, tell your friends to listen or rate and review us. Your support means so much to us and we can't thank you enough. Thanks as always to Olivia Kay for our theme music. I'm Amy. And I'm Mel. And we'll see you next time here at the Locktoon Podcast.